0: This is Mornings with Silly on 980 CKNW.
1: Well, the briefing yesterday from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix saw the province of British Columbia recording some new daily record highs when it comes to pandemic numbers. The provincial government announcing 409 people in this province are now in hospital. 125 people are in critical care or the ICU. Those are both daily highs for BC. And the number of active cases also at an all-time high, surpassing 10,000 on Thursday, and there were 1,205 new cases reported yesterday as well. Uh, that's in BC. We know uh, there are issues as well in Ontario and other provinces. So what can be done to bring those hospitalization numbers down? Joining us now is Raywat Dionandon, epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: what are your thoughts on the numbers we're seeing here in BC, uh, elsewhere in the country, seeing these hospitalization numbers rising?
2: It's kind of what we projected weeks, if not months ago. This third wave was going to be the worst wave and possibly leading to a fourth wave, knock on wood. So we're right where the modeling said it would be. uh, And we're in the thick of things. We're not plateauing anytime soon. The only way out of this is to restrict transmission, to slow down the speed at which the disease spreads, to give us time to vaccinate. That's the only way to save the healthcare system at this point.
1: Uh, So what do you think should be done differently Uh, as far as I I guess we've been trying to do that so far, but we're seeing these numbers still rising. What else could be done, do you think, to slow that down Mm -hmm. while we get people vaccinated? Well, I think it's
2: time for a national strategy. The provincial approach does have its merits, uh, but around the country we're seeing a, a hodgepodge approach. We have a, a different set of restrictions in different parts of the country. We need deeper restrictions. We need probably a domestic travel restriction as well. Not not overall. I mean, obviously essential goods have to flow, and some people need to cross the borders for a variety of reasons. But there's no need for recreational travel right now to prevent that spread of P1 to the rest of the country. But in terms of how do you spread, how do we prevent spread? in inside a given province i think stay-at-home orders are a given i think it's time to close close schools to be honest so that's controversial and we can talk more about that if you want but uh, at this point all the stops must be pulled and everything we can to slow transmission must be applied.
1: I I do want to talk more about schools, because that was something that was discussed yesterday, and certainly uh, the health officer here in BC was asked about that. Uh, Dr. Henry said that transmission isn't happening at a great level in schools. Yes, there have been exposures, but that's not where we're seeing transmission rates.
2: Yeah, so the the question has to be asked, are schools pandemic accelerators? Yes, you know. The question is, not are schools safe? To a large extent, they are, depending on how you define safe. I mean, the number of outbreaks are, they're not zero, but they're small enough that you can probably tolerate it. But do they contribute to overall spread of the pandemic? It seems that they do. The problem is most of the country is not set up to really answer the question well. For example, we can't tell if an asymptomatic child is the index case of a home outbreak. Because you don't detect the child until you detect a symptomatic adult and probably misidentify the child as having been infected by the adult. So our system is not set up to detect it. So we use indirect methods instead. Things like um, looking at incidence rates compared to the general population of the same age. My colleague Diego Bassani does that in Toronto and found that indeed the school population has a much higher incidence rate, suggesting that schools do push transmission into the community.
1: Uh, what about testing or what role could testing play in that? When you mentioned there may be an asymptomatic child that maybe is, is patient zero in a case like that, but if we're not testing, how do we ever know?
2: Exactly. So we have to do what's called active surveillance. Passive surveillance is what we usually do. We let people who are symptomatic come to the hospitals and testing centers, present themselves, we test them, and that goes into the logbook. Active surveillance is when we hunt down the, the virus. We hunt down the cases by doing asymptomatic testing. We can use our rapid testing capacity to great purpose in this way. And this is being done in some parts of the country, but not at scale and not systematically enough. We could use rapid testing to keep things open, frankly. We could have done this earlier in the pandemic. I'm not sure why we haven't invested more capacity to that end. I do have some ideas about why we didn't do it, but we could still do that. But yes, asymptomatic testing is a must at this point.
1: Why do you think we didn't do it?
2: because there's confusion about how to use rapid tests. They are imprecise, they have a high false negative rate, and there's concern that that will cause confusion in the system and people will test negative and assume they actually are negative and walk around and be infectious. But as we see in other countries, like the UK, where rapid testing is used all the time, so long as it's paired with appropriate administration and really good public education about the limitations of the test, it can be used quite well.
1: Uh, Because even early on, a few months ago, we were talking about rapid testing, and this was before we saw vaccinations in long-term care, but there was some modeling. The numbers showed that it's not perfect, like you said, but if we had done rapid testing, it could have cut down outbreaks in long-term care facilities uh, anywhere from 45 to 55%, which seems like that's better than nothing.
2: Absolutely. And it's a cheaper solution. Like some countries like uh, Slovakia rapid tested the entire country over the course of two weekends and managed to get their case down that way. Because if you can get a sense of, uh, of who's positively affected and have them stay at home, the rest of society can keep on moving to some extent. Now, it's probably too late to use that strategy now. We're in the depths of crisis. So we have to pull out all the plugs to slow transmission. And then when the caseloads come down, Then we can use rapid tests to keep things down while we vaccinate at scale to get us out of this once and for all. Uh,
1: When we talk about the variants, uh, the P1 variants, uh, the B117, at this point, I know in BC, the strategy has changed a bit in that it's just rather than testing every case to see if it's the variant, there's kind of an assumption made, may as well assume that that's what it is. Does it matter, do you think, if we're testing and defining each case, whether or not it's a variant or do we just assume at this point it probably is?
2: Good question. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, my first thought is it probably doesn't matter in terms of what you need to do right away. It does matter in terms of your long term planning. And by long term, we're talking about weeks here, not years or months. So it matters gauging the spread from one part of the country to the other so that we can harden the system. It also matters because uh, how we project how well the vaccines will do is impacted by which variant is prevalent because the variants have different efficacy scores when it comes to vaccine usage. And that's probably why we need booster shots. So as the booster shots get on a roll, we need to know which ones are prevalent to know how to create these multivalent vaccines.
1: Uh, Booster shots is something, too. I think people uh, who are feeling fatigue, which is probably just about everybody, uh, it's kind of the last thing people want to hear. We kind of want to think we're going to get out of this. Vaccinations are going to get us to the other side. Now we're talking booster shots. Uh, I think it kind of gives people the ideas uh, or the question, are we ever going to be out of this?
2: That's the wrong way to think about it. Booster shots are a path to absolute normality. So uh, it's lining up once a year to get a shot in the arm so that everything else goes to normal it seems to me a very low price to pay. So we should be happy that booster shots are going to be part of our future. And frankly, it'll be probably annually for a few years and then maybe peter off after that. This is not interminable, but we have booster shots every year for the flu vaccine. You get booster shots for the MMR vaccine uh, in some cases. Uh, so this is not something that's unfamiliar to us in general. We do have updated vaccines in our regular public health portfolio.
1: What are your thoughts with what we're seeing right now as well, the younger demographic making up more of the cases of hospitalization?
2: It is definitely concerning, and it's due to two factors. One is the elderly have been vaccinated, so naturally they won't be represented in the numbers. And the second is the new variants appear to be more transmissible overall, therefore more transmissible amongst young people. It looks like with young people, you're about uh, twice as likely to get one of these new variants, about 1.6 times more likely to be hospitalized and possibly 1.6 times more likely to die. But remember, a young person has a small baseline risk to begin with. So double a small number is still a small number. Even so, this is a wake-up call that the young are not impenetrable. They will be affected by this. And more concerning is the long-term impacts on their health lasting many, many years, because we don't understand how long COVID works. So my message to young people is, do not think that you are immune from this disease or its long-term impacts. The ICUs are filled with young people now. Therefore, we must be extra cautious.
1: Uh, people in BC are being told to cut your social contacts back to 40% uh, that we're currently around 55 65%. Do you think that's a good strategy, or will that make a difference?
2: it make a huge difference. Look, the reason that lockdowns work is it's just a disincentive for human behavior. What human behavior? Human behavior of seeking social contact. If you can't go to work, you can't contact your coworkers. If you can't go to school, you can't be in contact with your colleagues at school. So if you do this voluntarily, then we have we limit the need to have the government impose these restrictions on us. This is all about reducing our individual exposures. The disease doesn't magically appear in your house. Someone brought it there. So, yes, this is the one thing that absolutely will work if we all get on board with it.
1: All right. Uh, Raywat, thank you so much for joining us uh, and for talking about this this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. That is Raywat Dianandan, an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
3: We
1: are reliving the immediate pain that we felt. It has been one year since the Nova Scotia massacre and Sarah Ritchie joins me on the line now, Global News Halifax reporter, also host of 13 Hours. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, how are you going to be marking this uh, one year mark since uh, the Nova Scotia, ma- Nova Scotia massacre uh, as far as the podcast and telling uh, the story of what happened and where we are now?
4: Well, we, we just released the final episode of the podcast on Monday. Uh, and so we are finished with that for now. We're working toward, uh, an anniversary special, a news special here in Halifax on Sunday. So there's going to be a memorial ceremony happening on Sunday afternoon at three o'clock Atlantic time. Uh, we'll be carrying that live on globalnews.ca and streaming it. And I will be, uh, They are not at the ceremony itself, but just outside. And we'll have our newscast live in Truro, which is where the memorial events are happening on Sunday as well. Uh, At this
1: point, do we know any more about the gunmen, about uh, what led to this and how this was possible, how things unfolded?
4: I think there are still so many questions, Simi, and this is what's been really difficult for Nova Scotians and for family members. You know, I know a lot of families that we've spoken to over the course of the last year have said that just the lack of information, the lack of clarity, the lack of answers to the questions that they still have has been Delaying their healing process, it's been preventing them from grieving properly. So there are still a lot of things that have not been answered. And and to be clear, we've been trying to get answers through the course of the last year. Investigating this podcast, we've done what we can to to get answers from police, from government, um, you know, from different agencies. We've spoken with experts and and the gunman's family members, including uh, two of his uncles, who kind of explained you know some things about his personal life um but there will still be this public inquiry that's the sort of official way that that more answers will come um and the police and the governments in nova scotia are not talking until that inquiry is underway Uh, do you have
1: confidence that we will get answers from that inquiry
4: oh that's a difficult question i i think that um I'm really eagerly awaiting that inquiry to hear what comes out of it. I think that what's really important about this inquiry process, and if you remember back in the summer, the government's actually announced a, a review that was going to be held behind closed doors, and it was the family members and people in Nova Scotia who pushed back at that and said, no, that is not what we need. We need full transparency. So I think I have faith in the process in, in that it's going to be held open to the public, the hearings will be open to the public, the evidence will be open to the public. And that way, I think people will get more answers. You know, it's been such a slow trickle of information since the summer. Um, I think this is a way for people to kind of understand better what happened, particularly from the perspective of the police who were investigating, the government agency, the emergency management office that did not send an emergency alert that weekend. Um, Those are some of the big questions that we still need to get answers to and that's where those things will be uh, discussed in greater detail.
1: All right, Sarah Ritchie, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Sarah Ritchie is a Global News Halifax reporter, also the host of 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We're going to talk a little bit about real estate in this country now and one particular comment made by a Liberal MP. Vancouver Sun columnist Douglas Todd has written about this and joins me on the line now to talk about it a bit more. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Good to talk. Uh, this was a comment made uh, that uh, came across as I think a lot of people who heard it might have thought, did he just really say that? Uh, <laughs> you wrote about it. Uh, what was the comment?
5: Yeah, it was the Liberal MP for uh, Toronto. Um, he's And he's the Secretary of Housing, which means he's second in charge for housing for Canada. And he's a very talkative guy. <laughs> I don't know if he realized what he was saying. But what he said is, Canada has become a very safe market for foreign investment, but it's not a great market for Canadians looking for choices around housing. So he basically said that, you know, Ottawa's policies are serving speculators quite well, especially ones from offshore, but locals are getting shafted.
1: Uh, Which I think a lot of people would agree with, but maybe the the bit of shock comes from actually hearing a Liberal MP say that.
5: Yeah, I don't know what he was thinking (laughs) But um, it is what people have been, you know, sort of skeptical people have uh, been saying for years now. But as one observer said, we were, they were shut down or we were shut down even as xenophobic. Oh, we hate foreigners or something like that. But it's most of the, it's, the question is who is being served here? Is it people in Canada or huge amounts of offshore money?
1: And that's certainly become a question as well, looking at the numbers throughout the pandemic, because even if we go back a few years, uh, there was that idea that uh, it was a lot of foreign investment and that's what was driving the housing costs. But we've seen housing costs go up by double-digit numbers through the pandemic when you you might think, well, is it really foreign investment then, given the state what we're in right now?
5: I know that is a confusing issue. and And obviously people in Canada are getting into the speculation market too. And the government's policies of extremely low interest rates of basically printing money of pretty generous, extremely generous handouts to people compared to what other countries are doing. That's all stimulating the housing market again. So it is confusing, for sure. But um, I've done pieces that show that, you know, the super wealthy around the world are still very interested in Vancouver and Toronto as a sort of a safe haven for their... Money And there's many ways for foreign capital to get into Canada. And that's often through relatives or students or um, people who have permanent residence status. They don't have to be citizens. Um, You know, you just divert money through these sort of third parties. And it's still going on.
1: Yeah. Uh, did did the Liberal MP, uh, did Adam Vaughan say anything about uh, whether uh, he felt this was a problem? I mean, did he say it in the context of this is still happening, we need to find a way to to change this or to make housing uh, more accessible for Canadians?
5: Yeah, he did say that we've got a strange phenomenon. <laughs> um, but, you know, the he was pushed a bit and said, well, we don't, it is part of the Sort of government's economic strategy is through housing right because housing is the biggest thing in canada now and the development industry is huge and I'm not anti-development at all but um it it does bring a lot of money and, and wealth into the country and so sort of, so it of grows the economy but the downside is it's screwing especially people outside of the market young people um who you know uh vaughn said at one point um well we don't want to we don't want to see a sudden 10% drop in housing prices. And uh, people are going like, what? <laughs> you know, they just went up by 25% in the last year. We need to see them to go down 20 to 30% so that young people can have a chance to get into the market.
1: Uh, And when we look at some of the patterns too, and we've been talking about this, uh, I know whenever the real estate numbers come out each month, uh, they look at the, the, again, record sales uh, and such, but a lot of people moving out of the urban centres, whether it's in Vancouver proper, uh, in Toronto. uh, And when we talk about those numbers, it seems like there are opportunities that if people are willing to move out, uh, I know the Fraser Valley is becoming more expensive now as well, but if people are willing to move out, there are still those opportunities. So are we still talking specifically about Vancouver and Toronto when it's when we're talking about housing that's out of reach for so many people?
5: Well, uh, mostly. But the Fraser Valley has gone up 20% in the last year, too. And and that is, I, I sort of hear where you're going there, that is a kind of a positive thing that maybe more people will be able to work from home in the future so they can live farther away from their workplace. Like, I've been hoping that would happen for 20 years, <laughs> telecommuting right we kept talking about it but it never happened i'm just a bit nervous that some people who have you know worked downtown or something and bought a place in i don't know maple ridge are uh, might get shafted by their employees right you're saying oh no you do actually have to come back to the office but i'm hoping people come up with a lot of creative solutions so that people can move uh move away from the central core because it's a lot of it is way more affordable as you say
1: yeah and, and again with people getting a bit more space and being able to do yeah. that uh, does it show then that the measures taken on a provincial level uh, whether it's uh, the the speculation and vacancy tax and that does it show that those policies don't really work then when it comes to trying to i mean the, the whole point of that was trying to cool the market
5: yeah um they're they're only sort of partly effective they were effective until covid hit it was like um they were keeping prices flat in Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley, whereas they were still going up in Toronto. So they, I think they were effective in sort of um, uh, easing the inflow of foreign capital, right. And um, for various, in various sort of complex ways, actually, but then COVID just did what all the analysts said shouldn't have happened. Everybody was predicting prices would go down because so many people would be financially hurting like, Evan Siddall, right, the head of the CMHC was saying prices are gonna go down nine to nineteen percent. <laughs> and they did the opposite. Yeah.
1: Um, and I get the sense, too, from uh, Adam Vaughn's comments, uh, and, and you've written about this, uh, that uh, he, he made this comment, which, again, people were a bit taken aback, that he, he yeah. said it out loud. But uh, and also, as you mentioned, he, he said, we don't want to see this sudden drop, even though we've seen this increase in prices. Uh, so it doesn't mm-hmm. look like there's the intention or the appetite on a federal level to really do anything.
5: I don't think so. I mean, Vaughn was. I mean, maybe this is going to embarrass the government into. They've kind of been outed on their actual policy, right? So maybe they'll do something. But you know, Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh were making promises two years ago during the election campaign that they were going to bring in foreign buyers tax and we we're going to keep get speculation out of the market so it doesn't hurt average Canadians. And they made the promise during the campaign in Vancouver, actually, where it's. People are most heightened about it, and they haven't said a word about it since, so I'm not hopeful but man <laughs> you, people must be getting pretty upset, except i don't there's even polls showing that people who do own their properties and they're seeing their prices go up are kind of only half of them are happy with it. The rest are thinking, what's gonna well my children are shafted right yeah, yeah, um, so it's it's a big one.
1: It is. Uh, we'll leave it there. Douglas Todd, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks a lot, Bill. That is okay. Douglas Todd. You too. a Vancouver Sun columnist. You can check out uh, that piece uh, in the Vancouver Sun. Uh, some uh, interesting comments uh, made by uh, Liberal MP Adam Vaughan.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, a new documentary that is available on Netflix is getting a lot of attention, and it is called Seaspiracy. It's raising questions about the future of oceans and the future of marine life. But there are also criticisms of this documentary, saying it doesn't really address different types of fisheries and may have uh, several misleading messages. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Sonia Strobel, CEO of the Skipper Auto Community Supported Fishery. Uh, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Uh, have you watched the documentary? No, I certainly have. Yeah. And, and what are your thoughts uh, after seeing that? You know, it's
3: definitely disturbing. They're full of disturbing images, and I think doubly disturbing if you if you weren't aware of the realities of industrial-scale fishing, that, it, that there's just horrors of social injustice and environmental injustice that happen at sea every day to bring people their seafood. And at the same time, you're right that there's a lot that they get wrong in that film. And there's, it's, it's an oversimplification, really, of how we can solve these massive and disturbing problems in our oceans today.
1: Uh, What do you think it gets right then when talking about, uh, like you just mentioned, uh, kind of these big industrial fisheries and certainly it looks at at different uh, types of fish harvesting around the world? Are there things that it gets right or that, that need more attention?
3: hmm. Definitely. I mean, the industrial scale seafood industry is designed to extract as much seafood from the ocean as possible at as high a profit as possible for shareholders. And that, of course, is going to come with problems. And so, you know, the examples of slavery, of uh, enormous amounts of bycatch, of incredible destruction and pollution these are based on definitely some facts, and it's horrific what's happening out there. And it's really one of the reasons we started Skipper Auto is because it isn't all there is. You know, that there's small-scale coastal inshore fishing happens all around the world, and actually it is the lowest carbon, you know, lowest environmental impact protein source we have on the Earth is our wild fisheries when they're caught respectfully in the ways that traditional people have on this planet for thousands of years. Uh,
1: Because one of the questions uh, that the host, uh, Ali Tabrizi, asks, uh, he questions whether there even is such a thing as sustainable fishing.
3: Mm -hmm, I know. And the thing is, I mean, there's a couple of things. I think as humans, we have to acknowledge that life on Earth consumes life. And in order for our lives to continue, we do have to consume some other life. And whether that's what we call plant life or whether that's what we call animal life, we are consuming life. And I think Indigenous people have had a much more respectful relationship to that reality for longer than, you know, our culture has. And so thinking about what life you will be grateful for and what you will thank on this earth is an important choice that we all have to make. And I think it's a gross oversimplification to just say that not eating seafood is going to solve the world's problems. You know, making the choice to eat anything has has problems, especially when you're consuming food from an industrial supply chain. And whether it's industrial seafood or it's industrial pork or it's industrial grains or soy, they all come with these kinds of environmental and social problems when they're not done right.
1: Uh, He also makes a a prediction or says that uh, the way things are going, that if things continue like they are now, uh, the oceans could be or will be empty by the year 2048. Uh, How do you react to that?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, it's not fact-based. So it's, it's it's a, you know, and I won't get into the science behind where that, that stuff comes from because other people are doing a great job of debunking facts in, in it. So it's, it's a big statement, and it, but it is meant to upset people and it is meant to make people give pause to how we're interacting with the oceans. And I think in that regard, it's a good thing. I think we cannot continue to extract sea life from the oceans at the rate that we are. But where I disagree is that that doesn't mean that by stopping eating seafood, we're going to solve that problem. We do need to have uh, better regulations around seafood labeling and traceability so that people can make choices that align with their values. If people knew, I mean, in Canada, about 44% of seafood is mislabeled. So even when you think you're buying something that is, you know, quote unquote, sustainable, you don't know. You don't know where it's come from. So it, it points to a lot of changes that we need to make. But I think the oversimplification is,
1: therefore, there is no seafood that we can eat. Right. Do do you think there is a shift or are you seeing a shift in people that are wanting to know exactly where their seafood is coming from, uh, wanting to make sure they're not part of that bigger problem if there are issues with with, uh, the big industry uh, catch uh, that you mentioned? Uh, Are you seeing people that that are more interested that are going beyond, say, just getting whatever is the cheapest?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, and I'm just so grateful that we're seeing those changes. You know, we started Skipper Auto almost 13 years ago and just 13 years ago, no one was talking about these things. You know, we felt like we were in a vacuum saying, hey, you know what? There are problems with industrial seafood. And it was, it was kind of news, but it's really changing. You know, people are coming to us every year more and more saying, wait a second. I just read about, you know, it's a great book called Outlaw Ocean by Ian Urbina. And he talks about slavery in the, in the, in the, in the Shrimp industry and people come to us and they say I have no idea um, and, and they're beginning to make choices. Yes, that shrimp from that industry is really cheap if you go to the grocery store, but so many people come to us now and say I can't sleep at night, you know, knowing that I bought shrimp that was harvested by a slave in 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 Thailand or Vietnam. So you know, people are making those choices and it gives me great hope that people just need to learn. They need information and if that film does. Does that to some extent, if it helps people open their eyes and realize there's a problem and make different choices about what they're going to support with their dollars, then that's a good thing. Uh,
1: Does it concern you, though? We've seen uh, some celebrities coming out uh, and specifically responding uh, to this documentary uh, saying, uh, that's it, I'm not going to eat seafood anymore. Does that send the wrong message?
3: Yeah, I think it does. I think it's just a really big oversimplification. It's a natural kind of knee jerk response to a polemic film like that. We saw the same thing with Cowspiracy that is, you know, that's it. I'm never eating beef again. And There certainly are small-scale meat producers who are doing a wonderful job of producing a regenerative, uh, beautiful meat product as well. But, you know, that doesn't sell in movies. And so, yeah, of course, I find it upsetting that people are oversimplifying to say, that's it, I'm never eating seafood. But actually, I think the vast majority of people have a more subtle and critical mind than that. And they can look at it and say, okay, Yes, I am not going to eat seafood where I don't know where it came from anymore. That's a great choice. Refuse to go into the store and buy industrial seafood. That is an excellent choice. But actually find out who, especially when we live in Vancouver here, we have local, beautiful, abundant seafood that's caught by individual families in small-scale, sustainable ways, where the bycatch is almost nothing, where the pollution is almost nothing. So, so you know, I ask people to have that more subtle perspective, and I think that most people do.
1: All right. Sonia, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, well, thank you for taking a close look at it. I think it's an important issue. All right. Thanks again. That is Sonia Strobel, CEO of Skipper Auto Community Supported Fishery. And if you haven't checked it out, uh, the documentary we're talking about there is called Seaspiracy. It uh, is available on Netflix. And uh, Sonia mentioned Cowspiracy. Uh, Similar, uh, same people behind uh, that documentary as uh, well. Certainly getting a lot of reaction.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, the very much loved show about a Korean-Canadian family that runs a convenience store in Toronto has come to an end. The series finale aired on Tuesday, but for many people, the significance and the legacy of this show is highlighting modern immigrant families. That legacy will live on for many years to come. Uh, Ju Young Lee is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Toronto and joins me now to talk more about the impact of this show. Thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: What is it about Kim's Convenience that do you think really stands out was really why it was so successful?
0: Um, I mean, there's so many things about the show. I think the one thing that the show did really well was that on one hand, it was a very humanizing and and really subtle portrayal of a Korean-Canadian immigrant family. But... I think the thing that you know brought so many other viewers to the show is that many other families can see themselves in the characters. So there's something that's very unique about the story that it's highlighting this this family as part of the Korean diaspora, but at the same time, it's also a story that touches on universal themes like growing up, like uh, tensions between the parents and the children of immigrants. You know, like, there's so many things that. People who are not Korean can also see themselves in the Kim family. So it, it, it kind of straddled that line of being something that spoke directly to the diaspora experience of Koreans and then also something that was much more universal. Uh,
1: which uh, sounds like it, it, it's such a, a difficult balance, I think, to get that. And, and, and like you said, to, to really resonate with people who might have a common experience and for people who would really have no idea what it's like to be in, in that kind of family dynamic.
0: Exactly, and I think that's what's what what I really appreciated about the show being a korean american um like i I never saw a story about Koreans on t v growing up as a kid or as an adult, so it like on one hand it can it can really do a lot of work in in terms of introducing the fact that the, the issues that a Korean immigrant family goes through are some of the same things that many families go through, and I think that's in this day and age, such an important story to have out there.
1: And what about the the idea of putting a show like this out there, which is, is made also to make people laugh, to be funny and to be smart and that? Is it difficult to to do that and to have a scenario where people are laughing at the show without, without I don't know, without having kind of racial stereotypes, without and in a way that, that you can kind of laugh along with people?
0: Mm-hmm. Right, I yeah. I mean, they, they, I think this is another testament to why the show is so good and why it, fans are so sad that it ended. Um, it was that it, it wasn't a show that relied on cheap laughs. It wasn't something that you know f- defaulted to sort of like ethnic humor or you know ra- race jokes. Like it was a, a show that um, was very smartly written, and the laughs and the humor came from just the general human condition. And it wasn't really just about, you know, it, it didn't have that sort of like default that we see so often when you ha- you have a story about an immigrant family. Like it, it really just, it, it, I think it really portrayed the character as well. As well. It, it gave them depth, which is so rare in a show like this.
1: Uh, the show was supposed to continue on and have many more episodes, and uh, there's been quite a lot of response that it ended so abruptly. Uh, what, what did you think or, or what went through your mind when you heard that it was stopping?
0: I was very sad. I think it's a show that, in addition to like what it's doing socially in terms of like you know representing this Korean family, representing Asians on on TV, Um, It's a show that's really hitting its stride. Like the first couple seasons, you could really sense that the show was developing its identity. And, you know, it's the only show that I know of that my American friends uh, have tuned into, like religiously. Like I have friends from different parts of my life who have reached out um, in the past month or so after news of the show ending Hit. and they've said well, I can't believe the show is um, ending you know my family and I we watch this show together we love it. it it has this like really interesting cult following that transcends just Canada or transcends even just Korean people who like the show
1: and it seems like where we are right now, I mean, we've had Vancouver police uh, reporting uh, that uh, hate crimes are up. Uh, we, we've seen the hashtags like stop uh, Asian hate, stop uh, Asian racism specifically. It seems like uh, we almost need a show like this even more now.
0: I agree. I think this show, the the biggest legacy for me is that it's, it's challenging stereotypes about Asians. It's, you know, like when I grew up as a kid in the 80s and 90s, Asian people in uh, movies and TV were basically cast in the very stereotypical roles. Women were there for being like over-sexualized romantic interests. Uh, If you were a guy in an Asian show or TV or or film, you were the sidekick, like the geeky sidekick or the sinister villain or like a martial artist who had like five lines in a movie. Um, Like this is just the show where you actually get to know characters they have a a real arc they're actual flawed human beings and you get to grow with them so i I think i I hope that there's another opportunity because this the success of Kim's convenience should tell other producers that you can you can have a show with a a cast primarily of asian people and and it can do well
1: i know a lot of people are going to miss it for sure Uh, we'll leave it there for today we're right out of time but thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this
0: Thanks for having me.
1: All right. That is Ju Young Lee, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto, uh, talking about the abrupt cancelling of Kim's Convenience. The last uh, show, the finale, aired this past Tuesday.